You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields, from leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Welcome everyone to our first webcast of 2024. Hope everyone had a... uh a joyous and relaxing uh, holiday season and into the new year. Uh, and I feel, Peter, like 24 is going to be a better year than 23, at least from a commercial real estate outlook. It's nice to be with you, Peter. I think this is our 15th Walker webcast together. I rarely get nervous when I get ready for these calls, but given that we had 8,500 people pre-register to listen in on this call, I guess there are more ears and eyes today live than uh, we typically have. So um, I hope we both bring our A game to this, which I'm sure you will. Um, I hope I can keep up. I want to break the call, Peter, into uh, sort of seven different segments, and some will go quicker than others. The first is a recap of your 2023 performance. Um, I get reviewed by my board of directors and by the capital markets uh, basically every day. Um, I get to do one annual review of you, so I'm going to do that. Then we'll talk about inflation and rates, then macro summary into politics, um, get in the game, which I think is the theme of your quarterly newsletter, uh, potential distress, uh, where you see opportunity, and then your 2024 predictions. So let me start with a recap of going back a year, because I think that this is pretty telling of you and your team's incredible work and insight into the markets. I began last year's call, just so everyone understands, I began last year's call saying to Peter that if I followed his advice the previous year of rates are going to stay low, I might have been in a real pickle because I would have bought something, put floating rate debt on it, and it might not be performing 2T. So I want to be very clear here. I both give Peter praise and then also call him out on sometimes when he doesn't get things exactly right. So as I run through this, understand that I am, I think, a, uh, a level-headed observer, if you will. So a year ago, 56% of economists were predicting uh, a recession in 2023. You said no recession and positive GDP growth. Uh, you nailed that. Many were predicting a negative year for the equity markets. Uh, you said up 7%. The Dow was up 13.7% in 2023, and the S&P was up even more. You got that right. Uh, crude oil was at 81 $81.70 a year ago. And I pointed out in asking you the question, a truest analyst who was on CNBC that morning saying that oil was going to go to 130 bucks a barrel, you said nonsense and said that oil would be between 72 and $81 a barrel by the end of the year. It closed 2023 exactly in the middle of your range at $77 a barrel. You got that right. The 10-year was at 342 in the midst of a massive tightening cycle. And I asked you where it would end the year. And you said between 3.3 and 3.8%. I'm not sure when you said that, that you had it going over 5% in October in your mind, but it ended the year, as everyone knows, at 3.8%. You got that one perfectly. And final one was, while the world was saying inflation was out of control and throughout the year, you kept saying that Jerome Powell and the Fed were looking at the wrong data and that Fed, that inflation was coming in line. Obviously, as we all now know, you were correct. 
Uh, late November, we got a CPI print and Powell came out the next day and said, we're likely cutting in 24 and the markets reacted accordingly. So I want to start there, Peter, because when I saw that CPI report, um, I said, they're not on track to get into their 2% target. He's going to come out tomorrow after the Fed meeting and he's going to say, we're not on track to where we want to go. We don't know that we're going to cut rates in 2024. And so when he came out that Wednesday and said to the market, essentially, we feel like we are on track and we're going to need to cut, that at least caught me completely by surprise. Why didn't that surprise you? Well, it surprised me only in the sense they'd been so out of touch. And I can't predict when something really out of touch gets in touch. I'm not joking. Um, I've been saying for, as you know, for for months, stop looking at year over year, look at month over month, and annualize. And whether you were doing the PCE, personal consumption expenditure inflation, or CPI, month over month, they had been bouncing around in the one to two to occasionally 3%, depending which one. And, you know, they were, and in fact, for the last two months, they basically have been zero, literally zero. And uh, on an annualized, you know, take it month over month, and then you annualize zero, it's still zero. So, and that overstates where inflation is at because housing has been the main driver of why it's up. So for example, there was a month, I think three months ago, where they had inflation month over month annualized at 3.5%. But in that month, they had housing up by about 8% annualized. Well, you and I knew that housing wasn't going, rents were not going up at 8% annualized at that moment they were basically somewhere between minus 2% and plus 2%, depending what market. And um, when you put it zero instead of 8%, uh, 40% of the index, suddenly inflation's gone. And it's negative, basically, right? And so um, it didn't surprise me, except where have they been? I, I don't know what they're looking at. Nothing I'm doing is that. I wish I could tell you I'm doing something incredibly sophisticated and brilliant. I'm just looking at the data and I'm kind of reading it in real time. Just go to the grocery store, right? Forget data. Go to the grocery store for the last five, six months. You don't have inflation up. So what can I say? So at the top of the letter, you pay homage to our late mutual friend, Sam Zell. And you go back to an adage that Sam said in the early 1990s, which was survived to 95. Uh, that was in the midst of the SNL crisis for those people who weren't old enough to remember it. Um, and uh, you change that this time to survive to 3.5. And you're saying 3.5% on the 10-year. Um, you really think we get to the 3.5% uh, 10-year? Yeah, more or less. And the my rationale is fundamental which is, um, I think we're going to steady out at one and a half to two and a quarter percent inflation, which we had been at for over a decade prior to this enormous disruption created by the pandemic. As the pandemic gets farther behind us, we'll normalize back out to something like that. I told you, I think we're actually below that now. But And if that's the case, add 150 basis points risk premium. 
That's three and a half percent. That is over the previous 20 years prior to the pandemic. That's what the um, spread was. So just going a little bit deeper on that, uh, you have December inflation at 2%, January 1.1 and February 1.4. So to exactly what you just said, you see it being down well into their range. Um, and the other thing that you point out, which was the reason for the tightening cycle was supply chains. And um, you do underscore in the letter, the New York Fed Global Supply Chain Pressure Index, which got four standard deviations um, above normal in late 22 and is currently 1.7 standard deviations below normal, below average in October of 23. And so to the thing that you keep pointing us back to, all of the pressure from a global supply chain management and backup is not only out of the system, but it's well below norm. Yeah, I mean, look, you can still find sectors where there's shortages, single family housing being a dramatic example, but there always are sectors. What we had was an entire economy where there were shortages. And that's because when you shut things down, supply came back more slowly than demand. It took a while. And whether it was container cargoes, whether it was truck drivers, you name it, it was everything. We all know that, right? Well, those things are starting to normalize. Restaurants are opening that replace the ones that had closed. Um, two of our, just as a micro example, two of our neighborhood's favorite restaurants close because they didn't make it through pandemic. In the last uh, nine months, two, um, two new restaurants have opened in those sites, right? That's, a, that's what's going on in the entire economy. And it probably overshoots a little because that's what economies tend to do right? You get a little hot and then you get a little cold. That was the main driver of that inflation. And, and I say, you know, I think I write in Lineman letters something like, for those of you who don't understand statistics, four standard deviations mean we've never seen anything like it before. And if we have never seen anything like the shortages we had economy-wide, it's not surprising you had a spurt of inflation like we hadn't seen before. That's gone. That's gone. And so their their focus on, you know, the last war, the last war wasn't even created by them. It was created by all these supply shortages. The Fed did not create the supply shortages. They did not make truck drivers not work and so forth. Walker & Dunlop, one of the largest commercial real estate and advisory firms in the country. You start the communities. Our ideas and capital make them possible. And tune in to the Walker webcast hosted by CEO Willie Walker for exclusive insights on commercial real estate. So one of the things that you were baffled by was the Fed wanting to get to 5 to 5.5% unemployment. And you said, I've, I've never heard a Fed that wants us to lose jobs in order to get to all of the quote unquote numbers that they studied when they were doing their PhDs in, 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 in at right. universities like the University of Chicago, where you did your PhD. Your numbers today, even though the three seven number is the Bureau of Labor Statistics actual unemployment number, your calculation says that that's under by about 220 basis points. Um, so has the Fed actually hit their target? You know, it's very difficult. I don't, I don't think we're there yet. They keep talking about soft landing, right? Soft landing, soft landing. The notion of a soft landing is an airplane coming down, 
and landing smoothly rather than crashing, coming down smooth. Well, that is talked about in the context when the economy is above normal. It's overheated, right? That's where that came from. The economy is above sustainable. Can you bring it down to sustainable without crashing? We are still below trend. We're still below sustainable. So they're talking about a soft landing going up. I've never heard of that, right? And that goes to your point, which is we still have lots of labor market slack. We still have about two and a half million people not working that by simple trend should be working. I mean, we have the bodies. They're just not all back. Most of them are over 62, right? They, they haven't come back. Mostly the younger people and the middle age and prime age are back. It's the older who, for whatever reason, did not come back. Um, and, and that counts. The economy is still underheated. And so the notion of let's create unemployment, cool and underheated economy is was just bizarre to me. I, I just, and by the way, it was so obvious. It's again, I'm not that smart. All you had to do is just use the trend of GDP growth in the 2010s and extend it out. You go, oh, yeah, it's still, by the way, we're still like two percentage points of GDP below that simple trend versus pre-pandemic. That's, that's two-thirds of a year growth. So what's going on in the economy, Willie, I think is pretty simple, which is you've got most of the economy trying to get back to trend. That's what I call pent-up demand, whether it's for healthcare or travel or, you know, using automobiles, trying to get back to trend. And you've got, on the other hand, including, by the way, government, right? Because government let people go during the uh, pandemic. You, and you, on the other hand, have about 20% of the economy being damped by interest rates increase, like construction and banking-related items and automobile purchases, things that relate to short-term money. So you've got 20% being artificially damped and 80% trying to catch up. And, and is it a surprise that net-net, we grow? And that story was the story of 2023, I thought it was pretty obvious, and I think it's still pretty obvious. And as the rates come down, especially the short rate, as they lower the short rate, you're going to get back closer to trend by the end of the year because you're going to stop artificially hurting these sectors that are sensitive to short term, most notably auto. Auto is um, under-consumed dramatically. And that's because about two-thirds of the people who buy autos do a loan. And it tends to be a short-term loan. So they're getting crushed and they're not buying, but they're going to buy a car. It's not like they're never going to buy a car. They're going to buy a car. You do point out the average car is now being owned for 12.5 years, which I'm just, you think about that. And I, this is going to, I'm, I'm conflating a lot of things here, but you also talk about oil consumption and I'm, it's amazing how much the economy has grown and how many more cars there are on the road. And yet our, our aggregate oil consumption has stayed basically flat, which plays to efficiency. But I let me let me poke in right. for a moment on what you just said as it relates to GDP and under production and under consumption. 
this is a consistent theme in the Lineman letter, which is the undersupply of housing since the great financial crisis in both multifamily as well as single family, and you and then and also auto production. And you quantify it and you say currently if we would get to trend on on housing, that would add two point two trillion dollars to GDP. And then if you got to trend or to where we should be on autos, that would add another six hundred and forty two billion dollars to GDP. And my my mind went to first is that old adage, what's good for GM is good for the United States, still exists today. But more specifically, Peter, if you were president of the United States for a day, what would you do to spur either more housing development or more auto production? Housing would be hard because it's largely controlled, as you know, at a local level from a NIMBY kind of. And I don't think there's a lot they can do at the federal level. They can do little things. Um, I guess the main thing I would do on the housing would be um, I federal funds to local jurisdictions, which there's a lot of transfer payments, do goals that increase housing supply and reduce uh, housing costs. That is, that give... I'm not going to give you as much money for your schools or whatever unless you produce more housing, right? I'm not going to give you as much money for all the programs we transfer to you unless you do it. Something like that on the housing side, because they, they've got to get local areas to allow more housing. On auto, um, huh. on auto, try to convince the Fed to lower the rates because all that has to happen is does they lower the rate those people who are waiting to buy a car, um, they'll buy a car at you know a short-term rate of three, but they're not going to buy it at a short-term rate of five and a half. And I don't think now you say, well, the president doesn't control that. So I, I don't quite know how I get around that. This is why I'm not a politician. So one of the things I would point out to people, there's an article in today's Wall Street Journal on the cover which talks about a residential development by the owners of the Ball Harbor Mall in Miami, where the, 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 they passed legislation to allow you to basically circumvent the approval process from a zoning standpoint if you were to build affordable housing. And by the way, affordability in that article was quoted at 120% of, 120 of AMI. Um, that's, a very, that's a very generous affordability level. Uh, yeah, I, you know, and the moment that the developers come out and say they're going to build three towers, two market rate, and one affordable at 120 percent, everyone jumps up and down and says it's the worst thing in the world because it's going to send shadows and all sorts of stuff. So it is really interesting how much of this is at the local level, and the only way to get more supply of housing is if you have local jurisdictions and states that say we've got to do something about this. And it's very tricky, Willie, because here, here's how I think we got to this staggering shortfall: three and a half percent. Roughly, just around 100 million single-family uh, stock of single-family homes, and we're three and a half million short. Okay, just roughly. How did we get there? Um, from 2002 to 2006, we built 2.3 million more homes than we needed for people in four years. That increased NIMBYism enormously. Okay, at the same time the industry shut down building new homes because of the dynamics of the housing bubble and the collapse, right? And you can imagine NIMBYs saying, I'm oversimplifying this, okay, we're gonna let you build a million one homes a year, 
single family home. We're going to make your life miserable. We're going to make it expensive, but we're going to let you build a million one. And then what the industry said is, never mind, we're only going to build 400,000. So suddenly, by the way, still we're adding people. You know, you were adding bodies, but it used up some of the excess. Well, for four years, it burnt through the excess, roughly. And then the industry said, um, well, you may let us build a, hundred, a million one, but we're only going to build 400,000 still. Well, now suddenly you had a 700,000 shortfall. And then they did it again, and they did it again. And you get to the point where there's this three and a half million unit shortfall. And NIMBYs are saying, you know, we're not going to let you build 1.7 million homes and start eating into that shortfall. No way. Zero way. It's on you, dear developers, not on us, that there's a shortfall. Don't blame it on us. You could have built them. We would have approved them. And in many cases, you know, they approved them and didn't get built. And so it's an odd dynamic. It's the best thing multifamily has going for it is a three and a half million unit shortfall of single family. Why? Because those people are going to rent longer and build up money for down payment. And if you do some simple math, it's going to take several years more. Think of a person um, that might normally be a renter for 15, 18 years of their life. They're going to have to rent three to four more years. That's a huge percentage change right. in rental demand, right? If you just think of it in that way. And now, you, point out, you, you point out that the Wells Fargo Housing Affordability Index is at, I think, an all-time low at 38%. That So people have that in context in 2000 and. I think it was 12, the housing affordability index was at 72%, which meant that someone making the median income in America um, could afford 72% of the existing and new housing stock. Today, that number's at 38%. Yeah, and the dynamics, by the way, the political dynamics of this are fascinating, which is the person trying to buy the home in the community says, oh, it's so expensive, I can't come up with a down payment, blah, 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 right? They don't vote. They don't live there, right? They're living somewhere else. And the people in the community are going, yay, it's pushing up my home price. And the home value is a big part of the asset, right, that these people have. And you go, yeah, but that may be your kid that is unable to buy. And they'll say, well, I'll take care of my kid individually, not in aggregate, right? So if I, my, I can give my kid a transfer or something if I want. So the dynamics of it are, are kind of amazing, namely the community wants to be NIMBY because it pushes up home values. Yeah. And that's a winning political position. So I want to focus on two issues as it relates to debt. The first is our federal debt, and the second is consumer debt. So yeah. bear with me for a second as I throw out a ton of numbers from the Lineman letter so people get, so I can kind of get down to the specific numbers that I want to have you comment on. So you put in real household net wealth today stands at $144 trillion at the end of Q3 2023, $144 trillion. That's $431,000 per capita or $1.1 million per household. So it's a big number. Um, below that, we've got $26.8 trillion of GDP. Um, on top of that, we have about $20 trillion of household liabilities 
with home mortgages being 63% of that $20 trillion number. And you point out that the nice part right now is a huge percentage of those people of that 63% of home mortgages fix their rate when rates were really, really low and have a 30-year fixed rate mortgage or a 15-year fixed rate mortgage and don't have to worry about the fact that rates have gone up. And I have said this before and I will say it again, anyone who is critical of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's role in our government and in our in our economy should be thanking their lucky stars that we have Fannie and Freddie who have taken all that paper, put long-term fixed rate loans on it. Because as you pointed out two or three letters ago, if we had been Japan, Canada, or the UK, most people would have a five-year floating rate mortgage and they would be be being strangled right now by those floaters. So a very important piece. So you then though go to the deficits that we're running and all this is going to come down to our federal debt. Uh, you go to the deficits and you seem to just kind of blow through the fact that right now the CBO projects, and you do point out the CBO's numbers are are iffy at best, okay? So you're like, don't bank anything on CBO projections. But with that said, there are at least a number in the sky that will run a $1.7 trillion budget deficit each year between 2024 and 2027. And then you go to the federal debt and you say $32 trillion of federal debt, you back out of that inner governmental, which is about seven and a half. And then you take out another five off of that, which is to the Fed. And you get to a net net debt number of $20 trillion. So $144 trillion of net worth, $26 trillion GDP, and $20 trillion of net net fiscal debt or federal debt with a deficit per year of $1.7 trillion over the next three years. And yet I read all of that, it scares the you-know-what out of me, and you say, not a big deal. Please dive in and tell me why that's not a big deal. Okay, but let's do this in, in just point pieces. The $144 trillion net household debt is already net of the household's personal debt, right? So that's already out of that, okay? Got it. So the 144 not of net debt, and the $144 of, of, of personal net wealth. Yes, and, but their personal debt is already netted out. That's what it. it's net up is all out here, right? Now you say, and let's just say with a $20 trillion federal debt, outstanding, okay? Um, okay, so that says our net net, net net is really only $120 trillion, okay? Not the federal debt of 140, and you'd still say, that's the richest society I've ever seen in my life. Now, in fact, it wouldn't be 120. Why wouldn't it be 120? It'd be closer to 131. And the reason it'd be closer to 131 trillion is, as we're paying off that federal debt from our wealth, I'm paying off you for the bonds you hold. So it wouldn't be 120, it'd be closer to 132. And I don't mean to be flip. Can you tell the difference between 140 and 132 in a country that the world has never seen anything like it in a big country? I mean, yeah, Liechtenstein or Monaco or something, but a real country, right, with the lots of people. So. The aggregate is nothing. It's, it's, you know, put it differently. When the boom dies, 
they're going to leave more than enough money to pay for the debt run up on their watch. Okay, fair enough, the federal debt and the personal debt run up on their watch, more than enough. Fair enough? Yeah. So that's why I don't worry about it in that sense. Then let's go to the GDP context. So I've got $26 trillion of income uh, annually, and I've got liabilities of $20 trillion. I could pay that off if I wanted in about nine and a half months. What building? But, that, but that's saying that the government gets all $26 trillion. It doesn't, is it? The government only gets seven. I understand. I'm talking about capacity. And I'd say what building owner could, not would, could have enough cash flow to pay off their debt on their properties with nine and a half months of property income? The answer is almost none, right? And yet you view that as a healthy level of debt. Right. You, you know, if, if somebody says, I'm going to borrow um, such that it's 75 uh, percent um, um, of my income, 75 percent of my income. So think about it. I have a five cap on a hundred million dollar property. I have a five cap and I'm only going to borrow three and a half million. I think you'd view that as conservative. Right now. That's all we've done as a country. That's all we've done as a country, okay? Now, that doesn't frighten me, therefore, okay? Any more than would frighten me if you had three and a half million debt on a $100 million asset with a $5 million income, okay? What does worry me? What worries me is not the $1.7 trillion a year projected deficits. It's what the hell are we spending it on? And I don't care whether it's a deficit or taxes. What the hell are we spending it on? And we're spending like $4.7 trillion of, uh, of our money, if you will. What are we getting that's worth $4.7 trillion? And I'm, I, everybody can arrive at their own answer to that question. If you told me, if everybody told me, you know, the $4.7 trillion that the federal government is spending, we're getting fully our money's worth on every penny of it. Then God bless. And if you told me, I don't think that's true, and we're only getting, let's say, $4 trillion in value on our $4.7 trillion in spending, the loss is the gap, not the deficit. The deficit is just how did we decide to pay for it? Did we decide to pay for it with people who are here today or people who are going to be here tomorrow? And a lot of the people who are going to be here tomorrow are already the people who are here today. So it's the latter number. It's the spending. Are we getting our money's worth? Because if we're just wasting our money, what's the point? Hopefully you get my point. Okay. We have 140 wealth. We could pay it off. We'd still have 132 in wealth. Um, we'd have clean, remember, we'd have a clean balance sheet at that point for the country moving forward. Like, and we could pay it off in nine and a half months if we wanted to. It's the equivalent of having three and a half million dollars debt on a hundred million dollar bill. So one point further on these macro numbers, and then I want to dive down to the consumer because you give some really good data as it relates to the consumer and I continue to hear concerns about credit card debt, and so I want to debunk that concern. But yeah. you point out Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid currently absorb 
11.3% of GDP, right. GDP, and 60% of all federal spending. Um, to give that context, another data point you put in there uh, is that all corporate profits after tax in the United States reached a peak of 11.1% of GDP in Q2 of 21, and now sit at 9.6% of GDP. So we are spending today more on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid as a percentage of GDP than all the companies in the United States added up after tax make. It's a really, I think, very interesting yep. number uh, as it relates to where we're spending money and where we're investing. All right, over to the consumer for a moment because you put forth some- Wait, before you leave that, yeah. as somebody who is soon to turn 73, there's nothing wrong with those Medicaid, uh, Medicare, and Social Security payments. Just I want that on the record. I I appreciate that. And therein lies the problem because you vote, and a lot of people on this call listening to it who are younger don't vote. Um, okay, yeah. so uh, a couple numbers here: um, household debt as a percentage of disposable personal income sat at eighty-one point four percent in Q three of twenty-three. That's down from a peak of 123% in 2008, just prior to the great financial crisis, and also down from 88% pre-COVID. So Q4 2019, that number was at 88. So we're massively delevered from where the consumer was pre-pandemic. And the other data point that I put out there is that you point out that credit card delinquencies were at 2.6%. In Q4 of 19, they are currently at 3% at the end of Q3 2023. And so while up, they've come up dramatically since the depths of the pandemic when credit card delinquencies were at zero because the federal government was pumping trillions of dollars into the economy. And so people are seeing credit card delinquencies go from 0.5% to 1% to now 3%. And they've seemingly hair on fire that we've got this this you know the, this big crisis coming up as it relates to credit card debt and the consumer is over levered. But you point out that in comparison to pre-pandemic, we're forty basis points off of where we were. Yeah, I mean, and you have to remember one other thing. Uh, you, everything you said is right. They're up from an unbelievable low, and still below normal de delinquencies. And remember when you borrow through your credit card, they're assuming you're going to default at some rate. That's already built into the pricing of it all, right? It's only to the extent that it's defaults beyond what's built into the pricing, you get a problem. That is not the case. That's the relevant point about it's below normal. Now, there's another issue about credit card debt, and I, I, I write about it a little bit. I've spoken about it a little bit. It's a super important um, point. It's a super important point. Well, you know, you, 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 we all hear steadily credit card debt keeps rising, credit card debt keeps rising. And the implication is there's a profligate consumer out there overspending their needs. Well, everybody on the call knows that you have a grace period on your credit cards, typically 21 days, that if you pay your balance in 21 days, you pay no interest. And you say, well, how does the credit card company make money? The way they make money, a few of them charge you for the card, put that aside. But most of them are charging the vendor when you use the card with them. 
So how are the credit card companies making money every time you charge a purchase, they get a scrape. And think about even old guys like me now are buying their their sandwich at the deli using a credit card rather than cash. That wasn't true 10 years ago. You go back 30 years ago. So what's happened is um, credit card usage and hence measured credit card debt because on the if I pay my my debt off, my credit card off on the 10th day of the grace period, it registers as debt until they get it, right? So there's there's debt there. Credit card debt's gonna just keep rising until we eliminate cash and checks because what you're getting is this massive switch from using checks and credit card, excuse me, and cash to using credit cards. Of course it rises. Now I've tried to find out how much carefully guarded industry secret. I'm not joking. Very carefully guarded. As best I can figure out, probably 50%, 50% and rising of credit card debt isn't real debt. Right. It's simply convenience. And it is the bulk of the growth that's occurred over the last 20 years, 10 years, two years. Right. And I think that's an important thing to bear in the back of your mind, even though we can't quite put a pencil on exactly how big that is. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I mean, I think total outstanding on credit cards passed $1 trillion during yeah. this year. So um, to your, exactly your point, $1 trillion sounds like a really big number, except for the fact that if $500 billion of it is you and me using it for convenience sake and paying and never paying a penalty on it, it's not really debt. It's just a, it's just a service. Um, one other thing on this, and then I want to I want to move on to um, uh, to uh, canaries and some other stuff. Um, debt service ratio, something that you and I have talked about a bunch. It peaked at thirteen point two percent in two thousand and seven. Uh, it bottomed at eight point three percent in two thousand and twenty one, and it's sitting right now at nine point eight percent. So it's it's sort of right between those two data points, closer to the to the low than the high, but it's right in the middle. When does that number start to concern you, Peter? That number, I, I report it, and as you know, there's always this thing you can drown in a, a pumpkin of water that's on average one inch deep. I think that number is possibly the best example I know of that phenomenon, and you see it in real time in your business. So it's all uh, relative, and is what you're basically saying is it's all relative. You don't get to twelve and start to get upset just based on whether we're in a recession, non-recession. There's so much more to it. There's a lot to it, and my guess is you're probably right that if it starts getting 12, 13, 14, you start, but it's really, is it long or short term? Is it fixed or floating? Is it what what kind of property is it, et cetera? I got it. Okay, so quickly on Canaries, and then I want to get to get in the game. Uh, Canaries, you're at nine out of 50, which is a number that for the past couple, I think we've been right around there. Um, the one that I want to poke in on is a misguided Fed. You've still got a misguided Fed at four or five dead Canaries, okay? So how can you still be at four or five after Jerome Powell came out and said what he said on that Wednesday? I would have thought he at least resuscitated one of the Canaries. 
No, I look at what people do, not what they say. Okay. When they actually look, the the if I'm right about inflation, and I can't be that wrong, that it's down around two percent, a five and a half percent short term rate is insane. This is insane is when inflation was running two percent and the short term rate was zero. I mean, it's the flip side of that coin. It has different distortions, but it's the same problem. And um and they should have the short-term rate at least to 3.5% right now, and arguably 3%. So they got a lot of margin to go. When I see them actually cut, I think one of the canaries will come back to life. But until then, they're just talking. It's like, you know, I'm watching the Eagles crumble in a real yeah. time. You're you know, this is a replay of the Phillies folding in 1964, you know, with the, the pennant stretch. But um, it's one thing for the coach to come out and say, we're going we're gonna to play a hell of a lot better this Sunday. I'm not going to give them credit till I be able to do it on Sunday, you know? I, I, I will and say my, 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 my friend Will Blodgett's New York Giants are, are a formidable team that beat your Eagles last week. So don't take it all. Don't take it all to the, to the, uh, to the Eagles. We made him look like the greatest team in I like know, a bit. I know. Lombardi I know. Team. I know. It's Lombardi team. So um, let's go to get in the game. Uh, that's kind of the theme of this letter. Um, and you, I'm quoting you, investing in times of capital markets turbulence yields outsized seven to 10 year returns. And you think that many real estate investors today are making type two investing errors. What's a type two investing error, Peter? Okay, so I do that just to impress people that I know statistics, right? Or at least at one point I knew statistics. And type one error for those you remember statistics is what is the possibility of uh, believing something is true when it's not? If you do that in an investment context, what's the likelihood that I invest in something that I wish I hadn't if I knew everything, right? And and that's what most of us focus on if you think about it truthfully. Most of us as investors focus on, I don't want to invest in something and find out I shouldn't have. But there's another risk. And the risk type two error is that you don't believe something statistically that in fact is true. And there's a trade-off between type one and type two. And an investing type two error is, I don't invest when I should. And I think people are making that error right now. I think they're overly mechanically plugging into models in a sensible way. It's not like it's stupid. Don't misunderstand. But it misses the fact of how dynamic things are. It misses the fact that in times of capital market disarray, if you come back seven to 10 years later, you tend to find not only did you do okay, you did better than okay. And that's not factored into the models. If you factored that into the models, you'd be doing it. And um, I think there's a type two error, which is a lot of people that do have money aren't doing things because they're afraid of making a decision and finding out that they were wrong. That's a risk. And they're less afraid of not making a decision and missing an opportunity. And my, our friend Sam Zell used to have these conversations. I used to have conversations with Sam, and um, 
you might find it funny when Michigan scored their first touchdown the other night. My first thought is Sam must really enjoy that. Not, Sam must have really enjoyed that run. And then I realized, no, Sam's dead. You know, so that was a. But I, you know, had these conversations with Sam, and I'm not going to imitate his voice. But those of you who know it, think of it when I say this. He would say, "Yeah, everybody tells me they want the opportunities I had from '73 to '75, or '80 80 to '83." or 90 to 94, or, you know, uh, right after 9-11, or, you know, and he says, they don't really want them. They don't really want them, because when those opportunities arise, people back away rather than step up. And there were, he wasn't the only one who stepped up, but disproportionately, people stepped away rather than and stepped up. And you can imagine Sam kind of cackling, going, they say they want them, but they really don't want them. Um, it takes so, a different type of belief. On that and playing on the Sam theme, there was a Business Week cover in the 1990s with Sam's picture on it that said, Brave Dancer. That was the title. So you say in this linen letter, uh, if you're waiting for a lot of grave dancing, there's probably not going to be a lot of grave dancing. Uh, and you put out some stats as it relates to charge-off rates at banks and things of that nature. We let, let me go a little bit more. You know, we've been talking about trillions of dollars here and trillions of dollars there, and 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 it all is so big. And if you stay on the pure macro, it obviously you can play on the macro play. But people who are listening to this call have micro decisions to make every single day about: Do I sell an asset? Do I buy an asset? Do I finance it this way? Do I do that? So on CLOs. We did an analysis at Walker and Dunlop on the $56 billion of multifamily debt that's outstanding in CLOs that were issued in 21, 22, not much in 23, but 21 and 22. And based on our analysis, we think that about 20 billion of that 56 is fine. We looked at it well over a 1.0 debt service cover. It's great collateral. And remember, this is just multi. This is just multi. But 41% of it, 41% or 23 billion is at or below a 1.0 debt service cover, and we put a big question mark as it relates to the performance and the ability to continue servicing that debt. And most glaringly, 12 billion or 22% of it is got at an average DSCR of 0.7, of 0.7. So we add all that. I mean, let's just take a conservative look at it, Peter, and say that this is all 50% LTV debt, which we know it's not, but let's just call it 50% right. LTV debt. So as you're sitting there, You've got $70 billion of multi-assets with a capital structure on right on them right now that is not sustainable. So when you say there's like no distress, no brave dancing, I ask you, well, how do you then foot $70 billion of multi out there that has a capital structure that just doesn't work today? Okay, so two, uh, great question. Two answers. One, how cuts the short-term rate by 100 basis points or 150 basis points over the next year, how much of that debt suddenly does cover? Because the bulk of what you're describing, I suspect, is They're floaters. They're all floaters. You got it. So 150 basis points, it's not going to make them brilliant, but it's going to make them survivable. And if they're survivable, the current owner is going to figure out a way, right? Or the current lender is going to figure out a way to make the current owner get there and so forth. So it only takes 100, 150 basis points to get there. And we just talked about that, right? Yep. And then 
And by the way, 150 basis points would still only have the short rate down to four in a world where inflation would probably be 2%. So it's still abnormally high. Okay? Right. So that's one way. The second is um, just because there is a bad capital structure doesn't mean there's an opportunity. If I've got staggering amounts of money willing to step into that property, it's not going to be a great opportunity. It's going to be an opportunity, but it's not going to be a great dance. And so one of the numbers I put in, or one of the quick calculations I put in, is I, I happen to be chairman of Rockefeller Center trying to sell the property in um, 1993, 1994. At that moment, there were no sovereign wealth funds. At that moment, pension funds absolutely were not putting a dime into real estate additional. At that moment, there were no notable REITs. At that moment, uh, private equity, real estate private equity in aggregate had about $2 billion in aggregate. By the way, of that aggregate, 85% was already committed, right? So when you say, well, how much was really available? Dry powder could have been as little as a couple hundred million dollars, a couple hundred million dollars of available dry powder private equity. And you go, okay, let's contrast that to today. How much dry powder private equity, just private equity is out there? And the answer is, I don't know exactly, 200 to 250. How much um, sovereign is out there interested and willing? I mean, you, we both know where to go. Whether they'll do it is a different matter, but you know where to go. Um, how about REITs? Well, we have well-capitalized REITs. So let's assume a really good opportunity comes up with a 0 0.9, 0 0.9 coverage, and rates are on their way down. You think that's going to be a grave dance or that's going to be a heavily competed situation? Basically, the new owner is going to come in and price that. Now, obviously, if it's a crap building in a crap location, that you know, that's a different issue. But that's not a grave dance opportunity. That's difficult, right? So this notion that I'm going to find a 95% occupied and they have a 0.9 coverage and they're upside down on their capital structure and so forth, and I'm going to steal it, there'll be a few. I, and I'm sure you'll be able a year from now to point out, what, $5 billion of such deals? And, you know, I'm sure they're going to happen. Or you may even be able to point out $6 billion of such deals over the course of the year. But that's hardly a massive grave dance possibility. So um, in looking at where construction dollars are going, because I think this is a really interesting forward view that you put in the Lineman report. Um, construction spending T12. Let me just run through the numbers quickly and then get you to comment on it. Office, $81 billion, which surprised me. Industrial 263 billion, retail 43 billion, lodging 22 billion, multi 129 billion. Let me run back through that in percentages because when you hear those, it's hard to kind of put them into context. Office, 15% of construction dollars are in office today. Industrial, 48% of construction dollars are in industrial. Retail, 7%. Lodging, 4%. Multi, 24%. Pretty clear from those numbers, Peter, that the two asset classes that people want to build and own are industrial and multi. Yeah, 
There's no doubt. And the office is, as we've talked about, a bit odd because yeah. you have essentially, you essentially have a model. It could turn out to be right, which is if I build, build it, they will come because they want the latest and greatest and will just obsolete the old stuff, right? And because otherwise it makes no sense, the construction levels in office. But industrial still is undersupplied and multi is in a few markets oversupplied and a few markets undersupplied. There's some near-term short, there's some near-term softness as we go through this year and early next year. Remember how screwed up the pipeline got by, by the pandemic and the shutdown. So what would have been a fairly smooth pipeline got shut down pretty much in 2020, but then, you know, some of that starts coming out in 2022 and a lot of it got backed up into 23 and into 24. So what you're going to get is softness in multifamily this year, but you're going to make it back up in 20, late 25, 26 and 27. Why? Because multifamily construction starts have fallen at least by half in what, six months, something like that. And as you and I have spoken about, I've spoken about this with major owners of multifamily and major developers. None of us can even figure out where the multifamily starts are coming from that make up the multifamily starts we see. You know, they, you get a sense they're more like 200,000 than 300,000. Um, mostly affordable and niche stuff and some opportunity zone stuff and some 1031, you know, uh, but, you know, it will balance out over time. So multifamily still looks pretty good. And and I come back to where we kind of started, which on the best friend multifamily has is um, single family is funding fundamentally underbuilt. If your main competitor, it's not your main, if a major competitor fundamentally cannot produce enough to meet the demand of the people who want to buy them, it's good for you. If Toyota cannot make enough automobiles to match the demand of people who want to buy Toyotas, it's good for Honda, it's good for Ford, it's good for you know, GM. That's what's going on with multifamily. And the difference is Toyota will figure out a way to ramp up. I don't know, as we talked about, that single family can figure out a way to ramp up to get rid of that situation. Um, a real quick one, uh, and because I got a bunch of that I want to get through before we loop up and um, we'll run out of time. Uh, the, the, as it relates to construction, the Lineman Construction Cost Index is up 10.3% since pre-pandemic, yet the Turner Construction Building Cost Index is down 2.3. Why is there such a disparity between the Lineman Construction Cost Index and the Turner Index? They use a lot more steel. They use a lot more. I mean, if I had to put it in one simple, they're much more, I'm not saying right or wrong. We, I, we actually, Turner's pretty good. That's why I do them both. They're much more geared to, um, uh, steel, concrete, reinforced high rises. And if you think about it, that's what Turner does, right? Remember, Turner wasn't doing this as an iliomacinary exercise. They were doing it to try to give a sense of people who use them, all right? 
And so they think of a Turner. They tend to do big steel reinforced. And steel was a major shortage issue. Got it. And then that, that shortage has reversed. I had to finish the sentence, right? That shortage reversed. Um, so a couple quick things on assets, and then I want to go into predictions. So on hospitality, I was really surprised that real red bar is down from $98.35 pre-pandemic to $93.03 today. That, I mean, that defies every hotel that I go to today. I mean, it just feels like every hotel is overbooked and overcharging. And so I was very interested to see that that actual rep par number in occupancy that's, hospitality that's, has gone from 66% but, down to 63. But that's in real terms. That's in real terms. That's adjusted for inflation. Right. Okay. Makes right? sense. And yep. what it really says is we're not all the way back yet in terms of demand. Right. Right. We're back, but we're not all the way back to quote where we should be. Right. Okay. In, in real terms. And I just talked about industrial and how industrial has 48% of the construction dollars going to it right now. Yet you point out in the letter that industrial vacancy rates have gone from 3.3% pre-COVID to 2% today. 2% yeah. vacancy in industrial. Yeah. And what's happening there is we talked about it before, which is as online sales increase, they use a lot more warehouse space than uh, traditional retail uses. So every time, you know, I just watched a wonderful life over the Christmas holidays. Every time you hear a bell, it means there's an angel getting its wings, right? Every time you see something bought online, it means a whole lot more warehouse space is needed than traditionally. And and we're still trying to catch up there. We're just still trying to catch up. All right. So on to predictions. Um, I got to get you on the record because I love doing my look back. Um, the first one that I just think is an interesting anecdote is that you talk in the letter about AI's impact on the economy versus Ozempic's impact on the economy. And you put out there, and I thought this was really amazing, Peter, you put forth as it relates to our federal spending that you think that Ozempic and these weight loss drugs could save us two to 3% of GDP in our overall sure. healthcare spending in America. Sure. You had you had Mike Royzen on with me some year and a half ago or so. And we spend a tremendous amount of money on problems associated with being overweight. And you could argue probably 70 to 80% of medical expenditures are on that in one way or another. And the Ozembics of the world could be an amazing partial solution to that issue. And with it will go medical and health benefits of which Medicare and Medicaid are major payers for those things. So if I no longer have, if I lose a bit of weight and I no longer have to take blood pressure medicine, that saves Medicaid. And, and, and you know, just that kind of stuff, you can add it up. All right. So first question, how many rate cuts in 2024? Five. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears. Uh, 10 years at 401 today, 1231, 24 prediction. It'd be three and a half, 3.4, three and a half. Um, my friend, Bob Nichols at Monarch, he and I have a bet about that. And, uh, you're, you're a lot closer to his prediction than mine. 
Uh, Dow is at 37,567. We up or down in the equity markets on the year? It'll be up and it'll be up seven, six, seven percent. I shouldn't allow you to do the same thing year after year, but I'll uh, I'll, I'll accept that. Well, what's going to happen is they're going to react well to rates and the economy is going to hang on. You could get a big run, but predicting 18% seems silly. Um, oil's at 72.29 today, year end? Um, probably closer to 68 to 70. Ooh, damn. Could even be as low as 60. But there's never the US in the last quarter of last year pumped more oil than any country has ever pumped in the history of the world. Energy independence. Uh two final ones, and I won't uh, the first one is you have GDP predictions for 2024 through 27 that sit around two and a half percent on GDP growth. Um any change to that depending on the outcome? Um, of the November election? Not not notably, no. Um, it matters to a second order. It matters to particular industries, right? And it matters to particular individuals. Uh, some win more and some lose more. Politics is more about who wins and who loses than the overall economy. Tends to be second order in the overall economy. We love to talk about it. I love to talk about it. But as I look at it, it's not big. Okay. And then the final one is, I'm not going to put you on the spot for the election outcome, which will happen between now and the call that we do January of next year. Um, but maybe an easier question. Does Jerome Powell get renominated as Fed chair in May of 2026? No. Hey. Uh, no. And on the political, I won't make a prediction, but I'll give a New Year's wish. I just wish we would have a president who doesn't look at me at 72 years old and says, how you doing, Sonny? <laughs> and on and on that note, um, I can say, how are you doing, my friend? And it's great to start 2024 with you, Peter. Um, thanks. The letter is fantastic. It's longer than usual, I will tell people. Um, it is chock full of great information. So if you haven't gotten a copy and read it, you ought to. Um, my summary of it is just that, a summary and not really the deep dive that needs to happen to really guide your investment decisions. Um, always a pleasure. See you next quarter, my friend. And uh, I hope everyone has a great day.